Um, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining. And thank uh, those of you who even joined a few minutes early as we were setting up. You've seen the backstage action. Now we're actually on stage. And this talk is about reinventing African art museums and changing times. So it's um, a, a wonderful opportunity for me to say what a great honor and pleasure it is for me to host this webinar for 154. I actually uh, had a conversation on Zoom with Turia Elglawi, the founder of 154, last month. And I said that um, I was uh, a 154 evangelist and super fan because I've been to pretty much every 154 uh, fair in London, New York, and Marrakesh since uh, it started. And I always want to remind everyone uh, how important it is to support 154 because of the way that uh, Turia, Margot, and their team have been able to bring us together around the promise and the potential and a wonderful opportunity around contemporary African art. So again, it's wonderful to see so many people coming from all over the world. We're all virtually gathered to discuss, well, the excitement around contemporary African art, but specifically with a focus on cultural institutions, and in this case, museums and cultural centers. So without further ado, as we wait for Koyo Kuyo, who's gonna be joining us shortly from Cape Town and the Zeitz Molka Museum, I wanted to um, introduce Sonia Lawson, who is the founder and director of the Palais de Lomé in my hometown, Lomé, Togo. And so the museum's been open for about six months now. And I'll let Sonia in a minute tell you a little bit more about what she's doing. And we also have Karen Milborn, who's a senior curator at the National Museum of African Art, which is a, one of the crown jewels of the wonderful Smithsonian Institution so um, Karen is an art historian, and uh, she has very much been at the forefront of leading some of the most uh, exciting exhibitions at the National Museum of African Art. So perhaps as we get started, perhaps because I have to promote my hometown and Togo, because I don't get to talk about Togo as much as I'd like to, uh, perhaps Sonia, you can tell us a little bit about the Palais de Lomé and what it is. And I know that there's a couple of images that you want to share, which I will share um, as part of the share screen function that I have on Zoom. Um, that's my privilege of being a moderator. I can just share things when I want to. So please tell us about the Palais de Lomé and let me know when you want me to share those two images that you sent me. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Claude. Yes, I'm very excited to present the Palais de Lomé. The Palais de Lomé was the former governor's palace in Togo overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. So we are very lucky in, uh, with a 26 acre park. And this former governor palace was abandoned for 20 years and then transformed into an art and culture center. So what I want to say is that it's a statement for us because we use the symbol of colonization to present the Africa of today and even tomorrow. So we shift a symbol of oppression into something thanks to the creative talents of Africa. So it's a venue that is cross-disciplinary and wants to showcase really uh, the creative talents in several fields, be it art, design, or biodiversity that I will speak later on about. So that's a brief presentation of the Palais de Lomé. And um, so, yes, and we, we have several exhibitions and, uh, um, but I think we will uh, re reverse on that later. So that's the brief presentation. Okay, um, um, I think uh, the screen sharing function was temporarily dis disabled. So we'll get back to that as soon as um, 
Karen, tell us to us a little about your particular institution within the Smithsonian. Well, one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize, well, actually, again, first, let me say thank you to you, Claude, for moderating. This is wonderful. It's such a pleasure to be um, on screen with, with you, Sonia, and Soon Koyo as well. Um, one of the things I think a lot of folks don't realize about the Smithsonian is that we are not one museum, but 19 different museums, nine research centers in a zoo. Um, we have locations on at least three different continents and um, I believe roughly 7,000 employees. So it's the largest museum complex of which the National Museum of African Art is just one part, although a part that I hold very dear um, and think is is quite important. The museum itself um, also has a really, I think, not well enough understood history where it was formed before the Smithsonian as the Center for Cross-Cultural Understanding. So it seems really timely with what's happening right now to recognize that it was founded in 1964 as a response to the civil rights movement in the US. So the founding director had actually returned from being a, a foreign service officer in Germany where he'd fallen in love with the arts from Gabon, from Benin, from Tanzania and returned and saw what was going on and that despite the incredible efforts of Howard University, of Hampton, of the Harmon Foundation that there wasn't enough attention being paid to the incredible accomplishments that had been coming from centuries, for centuries from the African continent. And so he set out to create a museum in the home of the great diplomat, intellectual and formerly enslaved laborer, Frederick Douglass. So that's actually how we got our start. And it wasn't until 15 years later that we became part of the Smithsonian. And roughly 10 years after that, that we moved on to the National Mall to our current location. And currently we are a museum um, dedicated to the arts of the entire African continent um, from um, our collection ranges from the 11th century to contemporary commissions. So, so Karen, I have my, my sharing superpowers again, so I'm able to share the two images that you wanted uh, the participants to see. But while I figure it out, I'm wondering <laughs> why a white woman like you got interested in African art in this way, because I saw that you did your art history PhD at the University of Iowa. It doesn't get more Midwest than that. And now we're talking about Africa. So can you tell us the backstory while I share these images with everyone? Um, well, the obvious answer is, well, why not? But um, to get a little bit more specific than that, I should say that University of Iowa gave the first PhD in African art history in the United States back in the 60s. So um, Robert, well, no, actually, wait. Uh, Roy um, Sieber, who would go on to start the program at Indiana University, actually got his PhD out of Iowa. So I went there from New York City, where I was working at the Museum for African Art, because at the time it was the only program that had four African art historians teaching at one university. And most places, if they had anyone, only had one person. So it seemed pretty fantastic to have the opportunity to be able to learn from um, you know, multiple voices. So, and I should say that I've, um, as an alt, adult, never done anything else. As an undergrad, I was a studio major and 
studied abroad at the University of Nigeria in Sukkah and graduated with an independent major in African studies um, and studio art. And so this is, um, you know, it's been my great privilege to have been able to work with the material and the artists that I love since since I was a kid. I mean, I was, I think, 19 and Elanatsui would let me sit in his studio while he was working. Um, and, you know, uh, Obiora and Ada Uduchukwu had a party one night where they did a slideshow so that I could see artworks by all of the artists who were passing through in Sukkah at the time. And, you know, Silvestro Becchier was a student there at the time. I mean, there were, or I guess he'd actually graduated his master's, but he was still in, in Sukkah. Um, you know, it was just an extraordinary time and an extraordinary place to be able to study. And when I came back, I graduated from Bryn Mawr College and they were given an African art collection and they didn't have anyone to work with it. So as a college student, I was handed this collection and allowed to try and um, interpret it. So I did multiple exhibitions um, as an undergrad and then went to work. Wonderful. I'm wondering if the screen share is working because I, 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 I think I'm able to pull up the first of your images. Can everybody see this image of the front of the museum? Yes, Great. So, okay, wonderful. So, so what is that? Tell us about it, Karen. So actually, that was that is the facade of the museum. So I thought that for people who have not yet had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C., um, which I hope, you know, as many as as possible will be able to and for those who can't we'll figure out better digital means of partnering globally um, but our museum was actually built on the national mall as a mirror to the asian art museum so that it's considered an international complex on the national mall so when you see that iconic vista from the washington monument to the Lincoln Memorial, um, the Greenway that runs along the middle has most of the Smithsonian museums or many of them, including ours. And because we were built at a time when no one was supposed to be taller than the Central Smithsonian Museum, which is called the Castle, our building is primarily underground. So what you see is this one story plaza, but then it continues for three stories underground. And um, as I said, connects to the Asian art museum. And one of the things that I love is that we have been able to install Yinka Shonabari CBE's fabulous Wind Sculpture 7, which he actually designed um, especially for us. And for those of you who enjoy looking at FaceTime um, or Facebook Live videos, it's really remarkable <laughs> to see the sculpture installed because what you have to realize is that it's actually on our roof. So there was less than a meter of soil and we had to actually block off Independence Avenue and get a crane and lift it into place. And it took roughly two years to figure out the engineering of how to get it in place with a mount that wouldn't freeze um, and that could withstand earthquakes and hurricanes. Um, but it seems like such the appropriate symbol for a museum that honors the contributions of Africans globally. That here is a sculpture based on the sails of ships that connected the world and um, pays tribute to the accomplishments of those who have traveled from the continent and um, contributed worldwide. Great, we also have these, um, another image here which is a little bit cropped, which is not ideal, but I guess yeah. we, we, we get the picture. So can you tell us a little bit about that image? 
So this is part of an exhibition and book. Um, so the book is easily still available. The exhibition is currently only online um, called I Am Contemporary Women Artists of Africa. And it's part of a broader initiative at the museum. So within the, the book, really what I tried to do is look at the history of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art as just one example of how we can understand why we are still in a situation of profound underrepresentation of women artists. So I did an assessment of our collection, I guess, six years ago now. And at that time learned that even though we had been collecting um, what gets called modern and contemporary African art as a museum since 1966, um, we only had 11% of the named artists in our collection identified as women. And so we recognized that that, you know, was not okay. And we've since raised it to 22%. And so this book sort of traces that um, history of how collections get formed and how um, Africa's women artists have been identified or classified in groups through literature and exhibitions, um, and then tries to sort of provide a way of looking at and expanding on this topic. Um, and then of course, this iconic image of Mbunguane by, um, by Nelly Moholy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was really happy that uh, Zanele Moholy and Yinka Shunabara's names were, came up in the first 20 minutes as they always do in every talk I have on <laughs> contemporary African art. So that was great. Um, I promise this is not a, a, a presentation, but it's really more of a conversation slash discussion. But I do want to show two images that Sonia wanted uh, to, uh, us to see. So the first one, I think I know what it is. Uh, this, the cropping is a bit off, Sonia, but tell us a little bit, you take it away. The idea is, to, is that this venue, symbol of colonialism, will be, uh, will showcase the Africa of tomorrow. Like, and um, what I wanted to share with you is that what is very important for us is to, to be able to restore the heritage and history. Uh, but also what we want to do is to, to, to showcase it within uh, biodiversity, in the, with the theme of biodiversity. So the picture shares that it's within inside nature, inside the park. It's, it's overlooking Atlantic Ocean. And uh, so I just wanted for you, for those of you who don't know the venue to present it, to, to have an image of it, to, to, to present it uh, briefly. Um, you think the sound is not good? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, um, it's okay now. It wasn't great, but it's okay now. Keep going. Okay, so yes, so that's, that's the idea. And um, so, so the, um, the theme of uh, the, we have several exhibitions with several themes. And what I like in what you said about Cholibare or Zainele is that for the time being, the, the contemporary artists uh, are not very well known in Togo. So the objective is to, to that for a conversation with everyone or many people, not only the, uh, I would say the circle of the art lover, the small circle of the art lover in Togo, but a broader audience might be able to quote contemporary African artists like we did in our conversation. So the objective here is also to bring these contemporary uh, uh, artists and art 
into an audience that has never been exposed to it for the majority of it. So it's, uh, I hope one day that when we call Yinka Shonibari or Zanelli, it will be totally natural for them to say, yes, of course, we, we know their work. So, and, well, um, Sonia, yeah. it's always, you know, Yinka Shonibari, Zanelli Muholi, South Africa, Yinka, Nigeria, or Elanatsui, Nigeria, those uh, in Ghana, we uh, those names always come up, but you know, in my you know twenty years speaking of Africa, Togo never comes up. So tell us a little bit about that, Sonia. Yes, Togo never come up. That's true because we, we didn't have the uh, uh, the the, uh, the artwork in Togo. Of course, as, like the rest of the continent, the country is bubbling with creativity, but it just didn't have the uh, the, the places and venues to be able to exhibit it big galleries, so we, don't we just have a few galleries, and we didn't have any cultural institution to, to be able to present the, the work of the artist. So it's the very first for us to have a place where the artist can be exhibited and the contemporary art can be exhibited as well. So and that's, I think that when you don't have many places to be able to exhibit the works, it's very hard to be, it's, it's hard to, to, to get to the knowledge of the, and the general conversation of people from other countries because they don't, Togo wasn't in their mind because also of the, the lack of the places, exhibitions, and it, it's an ecosystem. So I hope that we will contribute to that so that the Togolese artists will be better known uh, to the rest of the continent and the rest of the world as well. And, uh, Great, Sonia, you wanted me to share this image as well. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, this image, well, I wanted to share it to you because uh, we had the, you know, we had a conversation with the curator, uh, the British Nigerian curator Aminat Agoro about. Hi, Koyo. Welcome, welcome to our talk. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we're all having technical Hello. difficulties today. So we're all having no. technical difficulties. Yeah. Oh, c'est quoi ça encore? No, we hear you, Koyo. C'est incroyable, ces trucs. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't know if you hear me. I don't see anything. It's a whole mess in my technology today. So We can see you. Um, we, we can see you. We can see you and we can hear you. But Sonia was just finishing okay. up and I wanted to, to switch to you right after Sonia. Yes, okay. so the, the, the idea here is just an, an example because you asked me the question, how can we do? So yes, how can we be relevant to our audience as well? Is, uh, is also one of the questions. So with the curator Aminat Agoro, what we, we, we decided for her, her approach for the first exhibition, for one of the, the five exhibitions, so called Free Borders, is to have a Pan-African approach with artists across the, the regions of the West Africa region from Nigeria to Ghana, Benin, Togo, and to engage a conversation about borders, but also about materiality. So materiality, because the audience that, are, that is not exposed to contemporary art and don't always know the, uh, since they don't, they, it's a discovery for them. So we wanted to approach them with this film. So what you see here is a work by Tete Azonko, but it's a work done in enamel. So it's the enamel plates and balls that you can find 
that are very that people in West Africa are very familiar with. I don't know if it's the the, the case in the other parts of Africa. So we use something very familiar, but to express uh, something a uniqueness of the artist. So the, the audience were, was very, uh, I would say, they were very puzzled because they were uh, appreciative because they said, well, it's something that sounds for us very mundane and object of everyday life. And we couldn't imagine that out of this object, we can do something that is art. So it was one approach to them throughout materiality. So we had artists working in, with gallons, plastic gallons, or uh, like um, uh, Serge, Serge Clotet from Ghana, beat with gallon, with earth. So several, several mediums of, uh, uh, of expression that, that are very familiar, but at the same time, that are transformed into something else. So it was a real discovery for our audience because we wanted, we wanted to find a link to approach our audience with something that they can relate to. And, uh, and I think given their comments that uh, it, was a, it was a success because it's, it was a means for us to attract them with contemporary art saying, well, contemporary art can be this. It's one proposal. In the next exhibition, you will see another proposal. So it's, uh, it's something. So that's why I, I wanted to share this image with you that is very familiar, but unique at the same time. Thank you, Sonia. Um, I want to really switch to Koyo now and welcoming her. Um, Koyo, you um, are running one of the most important museums in Africa, certainly with respect to contemporary um, art, and you're in Cape Town. But because of Africa's demographics, I was thinking of starting out by asking you, how today's African art museums can strike a balance between presenting historical narratives and sparking the imaginations of younger generations of Africans who, quite frankly, represent most of the population. Some people forget that 60% of the African population is under the age of 25. So how do you strike that balance between history and future imaginations, Koyo? Oh, well, uh First of all, good evening, everyone, and sorry for my horrible delay due to technology. And I always say that technology has spirits. I do lots of Zooms every day, but this one just didn't want me to start uh, in time. So I apologize for that. It is not me being late, it's technology messing up with me. Um, and thank you, uh, 154, for the invitation. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Karen. Hello, Claude. Um, to answer your question, I really believe that we have to learn humility, institutional humility. Daitsmoka is just one of the newest initiatives. I don't think it's most important yet. We still have to prove our importance. We still have to work it. We still have to you know, build that importance. And uh, as much as I, I am really uh, aware of uh, the entire narrative that preceded the opening of the museum and that accompanied its launch, I believe that we have to keep that kind of hubris in check. Uh, I personally consider that the National Museum in Cairo is the most important museum on the continent. So uh, just to put that in perspective, you know, so I think it's important to, uh, to understand that. Um, now, 
museographic narratives can differ, you know, it is, uh, uh, at least I can tell you what we are trying to do at, uh, at Zeitzmoka. What we are trying to do at Zeitzmoka is really to contribute to the writing of, uh, of new chapters or different chapters of, uh, of, our, of uh, our art historical narrative. And uh, uh, when I was appointed last year, which was, came out of surprise, I didn't expect ever to become a museum director. Uh, and somewhat, I still think as an independent curator because I did it for so long. Um, I really, uh, I think that it was important for us at the museum to sort of really understand what Zeitzmoka can be, what Zeitzmoka should become, and what we can do to make it happen. Uh, on the other thing, on the other level, we were also considering what is it in our contemporary art historical narrative that needs to be said, that needs to be shown, that needs to be written, that needs to be done. And uh, we came to the understanding that for the last, let's say, 25 years, at least since I am in the, in the field as a conscious, uh, conscious professional, uh, there have been so much conversation around the, around the, uh, the artistic production on the continent or from the continent and its diaspora. And uh, a lot of those conversations were really happening outside of the continent and they still happen a lot out of the continent, and particularly when, when you speak about exhibitions, you know, major, major important exhibition of contemporary African artists uh, were initiated either outside the continent or, you know, Oh, circulated there. Okay, we have the biennials on the continent, which are very important and so on, but cannot, I mean, a biennial cannot be understood in the same way. So looking at that, uh, we realized that um, there is very little work done on what we call tracing artistic genealogies. And, uh, and, uh, and by tracing artistic genealogies, um, we we think of the I, the fact that there were so many group shows. I mean, whenever there are there is an exhibition of uh, artists of the continent, it's in a group show most of the time. Nine out of ten exhibitions were group shows. So we understood that there was very as much as uh, I mean, we all love group shows in a way. Uh, I am part of, you know, people who also contributed to the to the amount of groups that exist from artists of from our uh, territory. Uh, but at at the same time, I understood more and more how group shows are not, you know, the field that we should follow in the museum. That doesn't mean that we will not do, do group shows, but we want to focus on individual voices. We want to focus on indices and we want to really look at how those individual practice relate to others 
and how they inspire, how they have inspired others, or how they have been inspired by others. And this is what I mean about artistic genealogies. So uh, this is what uh, we we decided to do, and this is what we are focusing on. You know, uh, with uh, with a program that also looked at experimental practices. I mean, not necessarily experimental practices within itself from the practice of the artist, but institutional experiment, you know, for instance, when we invited Kiman uh, uh, Wale to bring his studio to the museum, it was an experiment because uh, in conversation with the artists, uh, uh, I realized that, first of all, I have this current or always frustration that when you go to a museum, uh, you see the end product. You don't see the entire process that feeds into a work, that feeds into a practice. So we invited Kemang to bring his studio to the museum. It was very challenging. It was very interesting, challenging for the artist, challenging for the institution. But I think that we will do more such, more such uh, experiments as well. We also opened a, a project room and, uh, and the project room is really a space of more or less kind of carte blanche in free space for very young emerging artists who have not yet, who have naturally had the museum presence or a museum uh, uh, show. Uh, and uh, and we, we work, we focus really quite, quite strongly, uh, of course, on, uh, on those solo shows, which are most of the time, and what we want to do, I mean, it's only one year that I took over the, the helm of the museum. What we want to do is really like mini surveys slash retrospectives. So the next big one that we are working on is, uh, is Tracy Rose and, uh, uh, and another survey from uh, Senzeni Maracella and so on and so on. I don't know if I answered your question. You asked about demographics, how we reach out to uh, to, uh, uh, to the public, but I think, uh, you, you, you know, uh, the museum is closed since four months, you know, so uh, the, the, the impact of uh, COVID-19 uh, is quite severe on, on the museum, and, uh, and the lockdown regulations in South Africa were quite severe, are still quite severe, so we are now in lockdown on level three, we can legally we can reopen, but uh, we will take our time because we are we are sort of revisiting a lot of things because we believe that uh, this situation that we found ourselves in on a global scale is uh, is so seismic that we cannot just resume at business as usual. Uh, we we need to um, sort of um, how do you say, uh, acknowledge that and acknowledge that on many level, on an institutional level, on the financial, we acknowledge it on the financial level anyway, because you know, uh, uh, ticketing visitation is uh, one, um, one part of uh, the business model of the museum. And so if the museum closed since four months, so you can imagine what, what that means for the museum. So, uh, but, but, then, yeah. but then that gave me the perfect opportunity to segue into my next question, which was, um, you know, with the museum being closed, there's also this kind of train of thought that we need to now incorporate digital technologies, right? Because there's an, 
a new generation, speaking of the word generation or genealogy, we could take it there, of, of, of African creatives who don't necessarily need to show their work physically within the confines of a museum. So when we speak about reinvention, this might be the perfect opportunity, don't you think, Koyo? I don't think so at all. Art still needs to be seen in a physical way because it's part of emotion, it's part of physicality. You know, of course, the digital space is important, is a space where you can bridge a lot of things, but you can never, you can, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned uh, for the matter. I don't think that you can replace the, 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 the experience of seeing art in a physical, in a real way. And, uh, and, and all uh, the, uh, whatever the digi digital platform or the digi digital space offers us, uh, if the work is not specifically made and conceived for the digital space, for it to be really as a, as a embedding all the, 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 the features and mechanisms of the digital space, I think uh, it is still quite uh, utopian to believe that you can replace the the human and physical experience of, uh, of seeing. And then, Sonia. Hello? Hello? Sonia, we're not hearing you because I know that you, you yeah. wanted to speak about this, be yeah. specifically because so many of the artists you work with don't even have a website. So it's not only about, it's not only about uh, replacing, it's just what service can we offer the artist and our audience and the newer audience as well. So what I think, for instance, for one of the exhibitions, Three Borders, with the curator, we noticed that many of the artists across the regions don't have any online presence, be it website, Instagram. So some of them don't have any online presence at all. So um, we, we, while the curator was working, she visited uh, over uh, 30, 35 studios of artists across the region in four countries. And she realized that it was supposed to be a behind the scene and documentation for us, because out of 35, only uh, eight were selected for the exhibition. But we realized that we have information and documentation that we can share with the other people. So what was supposed to be just inside and behind the scenes, we wanted to share it to the other people so that the a broader audience can be exposed and discover the work of these artists. So it doesn't mean that you replace the visit and the pleasure of seeing uh, uh, an artwork in itself uh, and the, the emotion and the pleasure, but it's just to enlarge the audience and give them um, more audience, a wider audience than, than what we have usually. So I think it's something that can complete the experience of visit. It won't replace it because it's not the same experience, but it's just something that can complete it. So for the time being, what we will do is that, oh, you don't hear me, I don't know. Here is it better? Yeah, it's a slightly better. Keep going. So yes, no, because someone sent the message. So yes, so I think digital is also a means to, to support the artist and support their exposure and broader their audience. So it's, it, it will help them as well. So that's how I see it and that's how we see it. So the digital is also a way for us to see and ex exhibit the behind the scenes um, of an exhibition, how it works, how it, uh, it's organized. So yes, that's, that's how we, we think it's, it's useful. I have a well, question. I, I really, yeah, can I ahead. say something? 
think ahead, I, I really believe that you know uh, we we tend to think of uh, either or or I mean the digital is a, is a, is a support and particularly now that we cannot physically gather and that all gathering activities are restricted that mobility is compromised for I believe the next one or two years that uh, of course the digital space is a space where uh, you can bridge certain gaps but I am very much and I am adamant about it uh, uh, against this idea of you know that we can just move everything to the digital I think and when you and particularly when you consider art as a social science the way i consider art as a social science and that 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 kind of human and physical practice that is embedded in uh, in many artistic practices that uh, that uh, that we deal with so i i think that even the younger generation because when you're suggesting that the younger generation so to speak is so digital and that they they, are, they have no sense or no experience or no habit of, you know, having uh, uh, in human interaction or physical interaction with art. We have to teach them, you know. Uh, I, uh, I, think, I think that it is very important to, uh, to remind ourselves that uh, uh, art is a, is, a, is a human science, it's a social science that demands this physicality, uh, at least the many practices that are still uh, practiced today. Yes, physicality, materiality, it's a place, when you go to an institution, it's also a place of gathering where you can share and go with friends. So it's also a place of gathering and experience and experimentation. So for that, I fully agree with you. It's just that I think digital can bring something else, but it won't replace, it's just, um, it adds another flavor. For instance, you know, Claude, where you're asking about the younger audience, what we began to do at the Palais de Lomé was to have storytellers, uh, what is called, for instance, in Senegal, we have a strong uh, tradition in West Africa of storytelling. In Senegal, we call it griot. Uh, in Togo, we have very good storytellers, people, also comedians, actors, and they were, uh, they were, ex they, they were visiting the exhibitions with them. And of course, what they express, when, you have, when you're a, story, a storyteller, you can sing, you dance, you speak, but in another way, of course, what you add uh, as experience is totally different from a single video or picture that you can see online. And this we miss, but it's just that it's just, um, online is offers, can reach another audience. And I think the, the, the question of audience is very important. And through online, you can have later, the, you can want to visit the venue because you've seen images that you liked online. And I'm speaking not only about the, the, the audience that is abroad, but even the local audience. The local audience, their curiosity, they, they are curious about the place because they've seen some pictures of it, pictures of exhibitions, pictures of the place. So I think it's, it's good, it completes both of them. Uh, of course, nothing will replace the physical presence. I wanted to maybe ask Karen, since you're in a, on, a, on a different continent, you're in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, and you, you have a different set of challenges. Of course, the institution is still closed, but you also have to deal with the complexities 
of working with a Pan-African collection that ranges from the 11th century to even contemporary commissions. So how do you uh, bring it all together in a physical and digital uh, space? Well, I'd like to echo the, the words of Koyo in just saying that with all things, I think museums need to um, restore and embrace humility to what we do. So I say that because we don't have it right yet, but we are still working and we experiment with different um, approaches. And to sort of further what Sonia was saying, to me, I think one of the challenges with digital is, is thinking of it as a as a replacement perhaps, or a dialogue with um, the physical rather than how do we think of these things as expansion. So how can you have, um, I think the future of museums is actually going to become much more intimate. I think that the direction we're going into is probably going to be probably more docents, more human beings in the gallery. How do we make this visceral, physical, emotional connection to a work of art be something that engages with the human interaction. Um, but then for those who don't have the ability to get into that building, what is it that you can do that is different? You can't just put a picture of something online and expect it to serve the same function. What can you do with an online platform that maybe would be interfering in the gallery? So one of the things that you know we do is in with several exhibitions. Um, in the exhibition itself, how can you give the space to allow the artworks to be in dialogue with one another, to allow them to breathe, to allow them to create the experience, but then either through smartphone technologies or webs or outside the gallery so it's not interfering with the work artwork, what are digital components that you can layer onto this where you expand the experience of that, or you allow somebody who's not physically in the building to still tap into content that they might not otherwise have. And I think that that's really what we have to do is recognize when you're in a physical space, how do you maximize the physical experience? When you don't have access to the physical experience, what's the thing do you want? Is it the voice? Is it the video of seeing inside somebody's studio? Is it wanting to hear, um, you know, in the case of, uh, Yinka, who we were speaking about earlier, we had him, you know, he provided a reading list. Um, Emeka Ogbo gave us a playlist, and so did Jim Chuchu. You know, so for someone who's working in that realm, then you can expand what you offer online so that it becomes something different that is conducive to that platform. So when you're on the website for Emeka Ogbo's Market Symphony, you can't have the experience of a sound art immersion, but you can listen to Emeka speaking about Balogun Market, you can listen to his playlist, you can follow other directions and use it as a spring off point to maybe learn about Lagos in a new way. Um, so it's thinking about those kinds of, of compliments. And then in terms of the temporal stretch of this museum, to me, that's one of its um, greatest responsibilities and, and pleasures is that as, you know, for so, much of the discourse on what gets um, classified as modern and contemporary African art, it's seen as a response to Western art history and how can we recognize the particularities and specifics of African history and how they have led to 
the extraordinary talent that we see today as well. And so how can we shift the directions of these narratives? And one of the ways you can do that is through different kinds of juxtapositions of artworks. And so, you know, fundamentally as a philosophy, I see the museum as a space not of answers, but of questions. How can we try and put works of art together? How can we try and um, rejigger the experience of the museum building or its online platforms as a way of showing how complex these questions are. That, you know, it's not my place to say who is African or where is African because it's the answer is different depending on who you ask, but you need to be able to show that it can embrace all of this and you need to allow people the opportunity to engage in recognizing that these conversations are far more complex than they have been treated, at least in you know, the case of Western institutions to date. Um, and so, you know, one of the exhibitions I'm working on now, and I'll, I'll get off, but it's um, looking at a king by the name of Liwanika, who reigned from 1878 to 1916 in what's now Western Zambia, it was then Bratsiland, but he was an artist. And he sold works of art from Livingston. He traveled to England. He had an exhibition at Taunton Castle. His artworks can be found in um, Zurich in New York City in Los Angeles and yet even though he was an internationally exhibiting artist making art for the market and having an atelier in his course in which he taught future generations of artists his story isn't as well known as other early modern artists and so I think it's rethinking how we tell such histories of modernity and nationalism that you know we offer a platform from which we can hopefully at least shift or expand on some of these conversations. Thank you, Karen. Well, in the nine minutes that we have left, and we might steal a couple of minutes since we started a bit late, I wanted to take a few questions. And the first one, I'm a bit biased because it's from Miliko Magoli, who sits uh, with me on the board of trustees at Mass Mocha Museum. And he asked a question, I, which I think is very relevant for Sonia specifically, given the colonial history of the Palais de Lomé. It says, um, African art museums are also not exempt from decolonization. And I would like to hear more on this topic because it seems that decolonization is aimed at museums in the West. As I understand it, decolonizing refers to the continual process of dismantling both visible and hidden cultural institutional forces derived from colonialism at a more global or trans-historical level. Now, I'll just have to say the, the question is quite complex because Meliko is an artist as well as being an educator at Yale, but, but Sonia, do you want to take a stab at answering Meliko's question? Yes, I think the, the theme of decolonization, we are, of course, because of the, the difficult history of, history of the building itself, it's about decolonization, but there are several ways of decolonizing a place. First, the way you exhibit the exhibition and present the exhibition. So, for instance, one of the, the exhibitions we have that is called Togo of the Kings is an exhibition curated by a writer, a Togolese writer, and the theme, we, the way we stage it, it's around proverbs, so Togolese proverbs. So it's not a typical narration. It's not the typical way of expressing things. It wouldn't have happened in such a way in a Western museum. For instance, another thing is that the objects are still alive, so to say, today. They are still used and they were borrowed from, uh, we borrowed them from uh, people from several regions of Togo. So even the way we do it, because normally a typical exhibition would, would gather objects from collectors or other institutions all over the world to present. 
Here we decided to showcase what we have in Togo and what people are still using. So it's another way of uh, telling a story. And I think you can tell stories in so many ways that are very different from the typical Western point of view uh, of expression, of how to work. Oh. And um, as Koyo said, we, uh, art is also social science. It's human science. And it's also this place for, at Palais de Lomé is also about biodiversity. And what we want to showcase is the ethnobotany. So the traditional Togolese know-how, or at least the Togolese know-how, uh, transmitted from generation to generation about botany and plants. How the plants were traditionally used to strengthen human system or for, I would say, spiritual reasons. So also all this is part of a conversation that obviously in another context, in a so-called colonial or at least different context, it won't be the same narrative. And uh, so, yes, I think oh. it's one of, the, one of the ways to answer. Yeah, uh, there's another question I, here that came actually. That, yeah, I mean, you, can you I, add can I say something? Yeah. Yes, I, I really think that, I mean, the, uh, the social sciences or kind of the development of, uh, of thinking and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, artistic thought and in that realm is uh, always comes up with uh, many things. I, I really have uh, 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 an issue with the entire decolonization concept, you know, uh, uh, because I believe that uh, it is very difficult for us in these organizations and institutions to, to do like proper decolonization work when our governments daily sell us out to neocolonialism, you know, on a daily basis. So how can you decolonize? Because whatever step forward you make, there are 10 steps, you know, that takes you backwards. So that's one thing. I think that this has to be unpacked in a, because it is linked, you know, uh, yeah. uh, in, a, in, a very, in a very clear way. The other point is that I, I rather speak about reappropriation. We are reappropriation of, uh, of uh, systems of productions and systems of knowledge, systems, uh, systems of mediation and systems of translations that are more adequate to our histories. So, um, and, and, and in that, I mean, if at the example of, uh, 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 of Said Smoker, is uh, uh, there is a whole uh, institutional structure that still need that it's still a work in progress, but that's one thing. But in our in our uh, exhibition schedule and uh, knowledge produ production program, because most of our uh, exhibition will all, are also coming with uh, substantial graphs, uh, we pay very close attention to the to the narrative and the knowledge that we produce that is uh, endogamic, if you want, you know, or endogenous, and uh, and and this is how we we try to to uh, participate in uh, in uh, in a writing of self or in the writing of ourselves that that really reflects the the ideas and the systems that we have developed. So. So I really write, sp rather speak about reclaim and reclaim of our knowledges because 
uh, we have been raped so many times and we continue to be raped somehow. So we need that space or we need to create those spaces. And the museum can be a, a perfect platform to do that. Yes, and I think our institutions should be places of freedom and independence. And the artists themselves, their practice and the way they see the world, they are independent. Of course, obviously, we have this issue of real independence that we, we the majority of the African countries haven't reached what we can call 100% real independence. But I think that we have spaces of independence and spaces of way to, to think in another manner. And we, we, the museums, the institutions are places where you can propose something else and tell another story. Tell a, a story that is very different from what the media or other means show about Africa. Well, that's Sonia, yeah, there's a, there's a related question that came in. This is probably, unfortunately, going to be our last question. I wish we had more time. But the question, which is related to all three of you, actually, is do you have some sorts of collaborative practices or some tools to coordinate shows, resources, staff, etc.? Is there a kind of network of African museums? And this is uh, being asked especially for museums located on the African continent. But I think it'd be important for Karen to weigh in as well. So perhaps you and Koyo can start and Karen could, could, could have the last word. Well, you know, Koyo, Koyo used an expression that I really like a few, few weeks ago is radical solidarity. So I hope we will have this solidarity and partnership between our institutions to be able to, to produce something out of it, uh, be it exhibition, curatorial, exchange of knowledge, practices, I don't know. It's quite open. Koyo? Do you, do you see the oh, definitely. I mean, you know, my, my entire work in this field has always been about opening arms and opening doors. So I will continue the same thing at Zaitz Mocha. And, uh, and also, I also believe that uh, it is very important for, for, for our field on the continent to really develop those, those exchanges. But at the same time, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I really have to stay very realistic. It's a matter of possibilities. It's a matter of means, you know, and, uh, and uh, there is, we have to look at a, a post-COVID uh, environment that would be fundamentally different, but uh, uh, holding each other's hand. And I think, I mean, radical solidarity, is, it begins just by just thinking well. You know, it's not necessarily, of course, actions and, you know, programs and collaborations are important, but just thinking well, just, you know, take consideration of your neighbor, of, uh, of your colleague in the other country. For instance, we are running this head-to-head uh, -head conversation since I started them uh, uh, in April. It is a form of radical solidarity, talking to my colleague uh, in the field discussing different matters. So yes, definitely, we, we want to, to uh, share exhibitions, we want to share knowledge, we want to share staff, and, uh, and we will think that we have to stay very humble because there is no such a thing as a solid ground, as Otto Bonkanga says. They will have no solid grounds anymore. Wonderful. Karen? And I must admit that, thank you, Koyo, she, she's been very um, supporting, she has very nice words, 
and I've received messages at the opening of the Palais. I received very positive and supportive messages from people in Ethiopia, Botswana. They, said, they, they just sent messages to say, well, you're very happy that something, that an institution happens in Africa and we wish all the best. And it was very surprising for me and very heartwarming, I would say, to receive such positive messages from many parts of Africa that I, I, I wouldn't have thought of initially. Go Togo, go Togo. Karen, what's, what's, your, what's your last word? Um, well, every, everything you've ever been said, but to this I would add that, you know, part of what dialogue needs to look like in the restructuring of museums is also how we create our content. And that I think the model of the museum authority is what needs to go. And, you know, how are exhibitions created in, um, in communication with with the artist, you know, working with artist knowledge. How do you, where the artist isn't in a position to be able to speak for themselves, how are you working with communities to rethink the manner in which presentation takes place and knowledge is shared and distributed? And this is also, I think, because of the extraordinary work of Koyo and Sonia and Othman and... Um, uh, Othman uh, from Macau. Yeah, yes, from Macau and Marrakesh. And, yeah. and Addis, I mean, people, you know, all over the continent are really reshifting all of these power dynamics. And that's so instrumental because in addition to, to keeping the knowledge on the continent and sharing it there, it changes how the representation does help happen elsewhere. I would hope that museums like the Smithsonian become more effective platforms for the knowledge coming from the continent to have you know access to the US and then to travel to um, you know the Tate and to travel to Centre Pompidou and so forth that you know that these become recept you know receiving and how do we get out of the way of saying that we control the knowledge and how do we become better partners and platforms for um, you know sharing. Thank you, Karen. I wanted to read one last question before we conclude, and it's from Bushra Khalili. Unfortunately, we don't have time to answer her question, but it had to do with the fact that the digital space tends to lead to confusion where we uh, believe that more followers means more viewers. So uh, Bushra believes that it's time to create um, an audience for virtual space where engagement with, and, and, and real viewing is what really matters and delivering real information is what really matters versus chasing followers on social media. So I think it's important to talk about that. And if I'm gonna actually remember two words from this discussion, it would have to be humility and solidarity. So I'm glad Koya, you led the way with those two words. I think we need more of that in this age of COVID and more humility, more solidarity will go a long way, I believe. And with that, I wanna thank my three panelists, Karen Milborn, Sonia Lawson, and Koyo Kuyo, and of course, Turia Elglawi, Margoil, and the wonderful team at 154. And we hope to see you physically in person, not online, sometime soon. Thank you, everyone. Have a great afternoon, Thank great you. evening, great Thank morning, whatever you. it might be. Bye. Yeah.